Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Want more Gators Breakdown? Join Gators Breakdown Plus. Starting at $3 a month. Get access to unique episodes, plus a blog, chat room, giveaways, shoutouts, and more. Gators Breakdown Plus is furthering the interaction with fans and listeners like you. Head to GatorsBreakdown.SupportingCast.FM to join Gators Breakdown Plus today. Gators Breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter, at GatorDave underscore SEC. Joining me tonight, co-host Will Miles and our special guest, Thomas Goldcamp from Swamp 24-7. Joins us right here on Gators Breakdown and look, we were just a normal, kind of just relaxed episode of just kind of taking a look at some of the big questions coming out of spring practice uh, for Florida. And then the news of Daryl Jackson, big time transfer target for the Gators along the defensive line commits to Miami. So, look, we we're going to get into that a bit anyway, without him committing a, 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 to Miami. Uh, it was going to be a topic of, look, we know Florida needs help up front on the defensive line. That was going to be uh, an angle of that, but uh, now an even bigger angle. Uh, we can take with that storyline here. So, Will Thomas, thanks for joining me. Uh, Will, it, it, it's your fault. You, you said we're just going to be rehashing a little bit of stuff tonight, and it's it, it's not going to be that now. I don't know, man. We got to send you to the Bahamas or something, or go to go to that Sandals <laughs> Resort. That's the only time good stuff happens on the recruiting tail recruiting trail. We're going to have to take up a collect. Maybe maybe uh, Halfcock can uh, throw some throw some fun your way to send you and your wife down there for a couple of months. <laughs> uh. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I, I'll go on an extended vacation. Then no, no problem there. Uh, Thomas, man, look, well, I know we've been trying to plan this for for a little while. We planned it a couple weeks ago to get together after spring practice. I uh, saw you in Gainesville for the spring game. Saw you here in Jacksonville uh, last week with Billy Napier speaking. Man, uh, thanks. Uh, it's, it's been a while. Thanks for uh, thanks for hopping on. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, have loved doing the Gator panels with you at various points, and uh, love watching the show. So uh, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, also y'all your uh, interaction there on Gators Breakdown Plus Discord too, Thomas, and they're uh, interacting with uh, some Gators Breakdown uh, Plus members in there. So big, big, big thanks there. Um, so yeah, let's get right to it. But before we do, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. Really helps us out here on Gators Breakdown. And check us out at the home of Gators Breakdown, newsforjacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. So well, one of the big questions coming out, guys, uh, it was a question all through starting spring, all throughout spring. 
We didn't get much of an answer in the spring game either. I don't think we were going to – I don't think all three of us really thought we were going to get an answer. Uh, Florida's woes up front on the defensive line. Florida has Jervon Dexter. Florida doesn't have much proven besides Jervon Dexter. So we knew Florida was going to be hot and heavy in the transfer portal. Billy Napier has alluded to it many, many times that Florida was going to be busy in the transfer portal, have to find options along the way, along on the defensive line, especially a defensive tackle. Transfer portal target Daryl Jackson – from Maryland, visited Florida around spring game time. Uh, 22 tackles. He was an ideal candidate, six foot six, 274. Uh, as I said, visited Florida for that spring game. Named Florida the leader coming out of that. Then visits Miami last weekend. We heard all kind of rumblings and rumors that, hey, you know what? He might commit uh, to Miami uh, over, over the weekend. Didn't happen. Then he schedules a visit to Florida. Following the timeline here. A day later, after saying he's going to visit Florida, ends up committing to Miami anyway. For, uh, Miami gets him in the end. Um, big NIL thought to go along with that uh, commitment to Miami. Um, Thomas, you've been in there. You, you saw it. We've been talking uh, along behind the scenes a little bit. There was no further NIL conversation with Florida in Jackson. He commits to the Hurricanes. Florida was in great shape after that visit, but Miami gets it done. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, uh, these recruitments are tricky. I think everybody's still getting used to NIL at this point. And I think, you know, it's probably safe to say that was a driving factor in this one. Um, I, I mean, I guess, guys, the question is sort of, um, you know, at, at what point will Florida, you know, kind of get the, the balance right between not wanting to overspend versus, you know, positions of need that, you know, the staff really wanted. Uh, how are they going to sort of balance that out? And obviously it's still very early. You know, maybe there will be further prospects that enter the portal at this position, but there's no there's no real spin in this one. This is a guy that the staff wanted that they felt very confident they led for and and really were in good shape for, especially after you know getting him uh, to to basically agree to that that other visit. And Miami comes in and and gets the job done. So, however you want to slice it, this is a little bit of a miss for Florida. And I think uh, you know Billy Napier and his staff at this point are going to have to sit down and sort of reevaluate things and figure out where to go from here. Yeah, Will, I'll go to uh, go to something Billy Napier told you know Thomas and I were in attendance for last week. He's look, he's he's still learning on the job, you know, right now. Still coming from Louisiana, Louisiana, coming to Florida, this uncharted territory of learning the Florida job, learning recruiting new prospects, learning the NIL game all at the same time. But we knew this was a big position of need for Florida. One, as Thomas said, they looked really good for at one point, and just don't get it done. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think we said coming out of National Signing Day that the the fact that Harold Perkins decided to stay home, the fact that they weren't able to close on, on Jacoby Matthews and some of those other guys was indicative. It wasn't necessarily a black mark for Billy Napier, but it was something that left an open question in terms of his ability to recruit at the level that Florida needs the head coach to recruit at, you know, when you're, when you're building a program here in Gainesville. And so, um, you know, this is just one more sort of question mark and it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, that things are going in the wrong direction or all those sorts of things. But like Thomas said, this is somebody that Florida had targeted this is somebody that Florida wanted and certainly an area they were Florida needed help. So yeah, look, it's, it's, it's not great. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't want, uh, you don't ever want to get beat out by a rivalry, particularly, I mean, you know, so Jackson's from Havana, Florida up near Tallahassee, which means it's not like he's from, you know, you know, it's not like he's from South beach in general, he's going home. In fact, you know, in this way, it makes it a longer trip for family and friends and those sorts of people to, to check it out. And, 
Yeah, look, NIL is a huge part of recruiting at this point. And I actually think that it's going to be interesting to see how different coaches, different programs optimize their NIL ratios. You know, are they going to decide to put all of their resources towards the five-star recruits we always talk about being the big difference makers and then sort of say, look, we're going to have to sell everybody else on other things? Or are they going to spread out those funds a little bit more evenly? And obviously, you know, depending upon who you talk to, that you know, the NIL is not necessarily supposed to be, or it's not allowed to be, an inducement to actually commit. But you know, wink, wink. I mean, we we all know what's what's <laughs> generally going on there. So, um, look, the coaches are working in coordination with these different collectives and all the other things that are going on. They're going to have to figure out that right blend in terms of optimization, obviously, with Jackson. Um, that that didn't turn out to be the case, or at least Florida didn't come out on top on that one. Um, you know, I do look at it and go, look, he was a three-star prospect, 715th overall in the nation um, right. back, at, back in 2021. He had 22 tackles, zero tackles for loss, zero sacks at Maryland last year. So, you know, I think about last year when we had Antonio Valentino come in, Daquan Newkirk, and Tyrone Truesdell, and the idea was, hey, these guys are really going to make a difference. And then they didn't really make a difference when you looked at what they did on the on the defensive line last year. And that's kind of, I think, you know, it's it's entirely possible that Jackson ends up being a difference maker in Miami. He certainly got more years of eligibility than those guys that Florida brought in last year. But the idea that, that he's going to be, you know, just an absolute stud and, and wreaking havoc on the defensive line, I think is probably misguided. I think what you were looking for was depth. You were looking for somebody who's ha- who's got playing time. You're looking for somebody who's proven. He brings those sorts of things to the table. But in terms of, you know, is there somebody on Florida's bench who may be better than Jackson? I, I don't know that, and I'm not sure that anybody else does either. Yeah, that was a that was a topic I went in there too. It was, the, the the Discord was on fire there tonight after this. So, uh, and we've kind of had some of these conversations. And look, yeah, I, this isn't a losing a Jonathan Grenard Van Jefferson uh, type. At least that's the way it looks right now. Now it could be that way, as you said, for Miami, but it doesn't look like that now. But this was because it was such a big position in need for Florida because there's just not much proven besides Jervon Dexter. Whether you were going to place him beside him and he was going to start beside Dexter or he was going to be a key depth piece, uh, either way it was a position in need, somebody who could come in and at least compete for a starting job. So that's where it hurts Florida the most. Uh, when you when you look at it, you zoom out and look kind of big picture. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, you're not losing this superstar player. And if somebody else brought up a good point, and we'll kind of go into one of your points that you made uh, with the NIO and trying to figure out how all this goes together. Now, look, we, we, there's the reports, and we, we heard last week about, hey, Anthony Richardson, Jervon Dexter, Brenton Cox, Ventro Miller all getting these new uh, deals from the Gator Collective. Okay, well, we know those deals and, and the monetary value of those deals are not out there. Would you feel comfortable if Jackson comes in and makes, quote-unquote, more money than Jervon Dexter? I mean, that, that's a line that, that, that this, too. And, there, and there's an angle that, hey, Miami may have overpaid, quote-unquote, overpaid here. There's, man, I'm still getting used to saying that when it comes to recruiting in college football, that we can actually get away <laughs> with saying that a little bit. Uh, but, you know, those are, those are all different angles to this when you, when you look at it. I, I think what's interesting, it's going to be interesting going forward, there are 100% schools out there that are committing to deals before they have sort of the funding secured. And I don't know the exact particulars of all of the Gator Collective, so I don't want to speak for them. Uh, David, that's more your area of expertise. I, I think what's going to be interesting is you're going to have a, a difference in how some programs operate. Uh, obviously, you mentioned the locker room angle, right, where you don't want a guy that's proven himself on the field for you already to feel slighted by some guy coming in from the transfer portal, getting more money than him. And those are all legitimate issues. Marcus Castro Walker, U.S. Director of NIL, he talked about those this spring. 
I think the other thing though is it's sort of right now this this market is so new that everybody's just throwing money at it, right? And and my sense of the Gator Collective, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, is more that they're trying to be fiscally responsible in the sense that they can manage this over time, right? Not correct. just one player, one class, but really build it over time and mitigate some of the negative impacts. But when there's other programs out there that may or may not be taking that same approach, you may lose some guys here and there. So I think it, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this all sort of pieces together. Um, you know, I, again, we're still so early. We don't know, you know, what the 2023 class is going to look like right now. Um, there you go, Thomas. That's where I was going to go yeah, before we go, go further. That's part of this right now. The fan base is just hungry, whether it be a transfer portal commit, whether it be a high school commit that's a four-star, five-star. That's where a lot of this comes from like if this would have happened and florida has five commits and mclean is one of those five commits right now this is a okay well we'd like to have him but we can move on it's just because there hasn't really been a whole lot of to pinpoint of momentum or good things happening so far well it, it's a it's an over promise under deliver type situation when you look at things like that right where you know napier came in said all the right things in his first few press conferences talking about how it's a talent acquisition business well you know it's time to acquire some talent and i know you know i've been preaching patience and i've been saying hey we're not really going to know what happens with this class until we get to late august early september like when kickoff comes that's really when we'll be, be able to evaluate at least in terms of the quality of the players who are coming in in the class at this and you know look we're we're april 26 right. so i don't want to like sound feel that way <laughs> if, he, if, he, if he had seven or eight three-star guys that, that had that had already committed, then I'd sit there and say, okay, well, now that's a lot to overcome to get to where we know he needs to get to. At the same time, it's not giving you a bunch of warm and fuzzies to have two guys in the class and, and be watching everybody else bring in talent around you. And Cristobal has all of the same excuses and all of the same and really – probably some more excuses than the Napier does considering the commitment that the, that the collectives and that the Gator guard and that the administration has made to Napier, that if there's a guy out there that you want to go get in some capacity, just from a PR perspective, you have to go get him. And, you know, to your point, Thomas, there's, there's a balance between overpaying, but it's like the housing market right now, right? I mean, you go out, you want to buy a house. You can't predict when the bubble's going to pop. Well, and you're going to overpay now, or you decide to be patient and you scoop up people later. But that's, um, you know, the, the question is, when's it going to pop? And if it doesn't pop for two years, you're in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you, you kind of got to gauge that and figure out where you're at. Because two years from now, nobody's going to be preaching patience if Florida's sitting there eighth, ninth, tenth in recruiting. We've seen that. We've seen that movie for the last decade, and the fans understand it. We've spent enough time talking about it over the last decade that it's going to have to be up there with A&M, Georgia, Alabama, and those other teams in the SEC. Otherwise, we're watching the same movie. And the whole point in making the transition from Dan Mullen to, to Billy Napier was really the hope angle, right? It's this guy's going to come in, has the Saban pedigree, built the program at Louisiana, understands what he needs to do from a talent acquisition perspective. And so, you know, misses like this don't necessarily give everybody a whole lot of confidence. At the same time, I think we've seen the list of all the visitors who've come in. And, you know, like you said, Dave, if, if Cormani McLean pops tomorrow, no one's going to remember Daryl Jackson's name. Right. And so there, there's a, there's a, um, at the end of the day, when we're when we're really looking at the results, it's going to be in August or September or even in December when we look at it and say, hey, we know where we are. 
but you know, look, it, it's it's the path to get there is is certainly tortuous, and we we felt good. At least I felt good that first year Mullen heading into that bump class until we started seeing some of the same type of misses. Where it was like, hey, he's you know, how many times did we have guys that first year in 2019 for Mullen's class where somebody was in where Florida was in the top three, right? And then they never seemed to come to Florida, and this just sort of feels like that a little bit. Yes, where Thomas and I we're, we're kind of talking behind the scenes to begin with. We you don't want to see the same staff feels good and it just doesn't happen. Uh, so, you know this this right here doesn't mean <laughs> that's going to be the same story here. Uh, but you know that's this just one 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 thing that we got used to happening before. Hopefully. Uh, doesn't happen again. So, but we've talked ad nauseum uh, about all the help Florida needs up, uh, up front. Nothing's changed on that. We just thought uh, now when we originally did schedule this episode, we might be looking at options Florida could add uh, to that. Well, Daryl Jackson will not be one of them. Uh, and now, look, there's part of another reason this hurts is there's not a lot of great options in the portal at this position uh, in this uh, at this position of need right now. One name it just came up uh, yesterday, I believe, Cole Brevard from Penn State. Former five four star recruit from Indiana, 6'3, 322 pounds. He was way down the depth chart. I mean, that's one reason he's leaving leaving Penn State. So there's not a lot of proven talent. And look, Florida, as Will said, went that route the last year. Didn't really pay off for Florida. It's some good depth pieces, uh, no really difference makers uh, right there. So just not a whole lot of options in the portal right now. And that's that's another reason why this one hurts. Yeah, I think I think that sums it up really nicely. I mean, Billy Napier came out and said they're going to be very aggressive in the portal. You've got the May 1st deadline for guys to enter the portal without having to sit out a year looming. I think a lot of Florida fans that follow it pretty closely and, and sort of hear everything the head coach says are like, okay, where's the portal action, right? And right now, I think you can maybe make the case, and this is obviously the benefit of hindsight, that Florida should have been a little more active in the portal in the winter. You know, I thought... At the time, and I'll be the first one to admit, I thought at the time it was probably smart to be patient, uh, deliberate, and sort of see what happens. But I think generally you're going to see more big-time prospects in that winter period because guys like to get in there. If they know they're leaving, they, they want to get in there and get through spring ball and really set themselves up. Spring tends to be a little bit lighter. And I, I would guarantee that we see more guys pop up over the next couple of days. But I think as much of the angst is about that, that you know Florida just hasn't really seen – either A, guys entering the portal from their team to open up some spots, or B, you know, like Florida, we don't know of a lot of guys that Florida's in contact with right now from the portal. And so I think that's creating a little bit of the uneasiness. Yep, that's true. So I think, we'll look, guys, let's keep on the portal talk uh, because uh, Chatch from Gators Breakdown Plus uh, he one of his questions that he one of his questions after spring was wide receiver position. That's a big uh, question that we, that we all have. Um, and he was wondering what transfers did we fill the void of playmakers with? So I'll go through a, a little bit, then we can kind of talk about the wide receiver position uh, a bit as well. But JUCO Malik Benson, his name's kind of been getting hot a little bit. Really good, has top offers from everybody out there right now. Trying to set up an official visit for Florida. 6'1", 185 pounds, sub 10'5", 100 meter. Uh, every big school is offering him right now. His stats for last year in JUCO, 43 receptions, 1,229 yards, 28.6 yards per catch, 11 touchdowns. Uh, there's interest in Florida trying to get that visit set up. Uh, Ricky Pearsall, 
Uh, announced last week, he's transformed from Arizona State. Uh, Thomas, you guys there at uh, Swamp 24-7 were able to, to, to break that one. Uh, during his junior season at Arizona State, uh, Pearsall accounted for 48 receptions, 580 yards, 12.1 yards per catch, four touchdowns. Um, to, uh, that was his best season in his college career so far. Six foot one, 200 pounds, would be pretty much plug and play there in the slot. Uh, Shows some nice ability, ability after the catch. Um, another Oklahoma, Cody Jackson, was a true freshman last season, two games last season, caught five passes for 45 yards, two of those versus Nebraska, uh, three versus Western Carolina. Came to Oklahoma as a four-star recruit, as the number 17 wide receiver uh, in 24-7 sports composite rankings uh, in the 2021 class. Uh, and then also right down the road, UCF, Jalen Robinson, five foot nine, 180-pound playmaker for UCF. Uh, last season, 234 yards, 12 catches, two touchdowns in the first three games. He suffered a knee injury, returned, played his final three regular season games to total six catches for 88 yards, no scores to end the season. He did miss the Gasparilla Bowl versus Forrest. If that name did not come around uh, because of that matchup, that would be reason why. Transfer from Oklahoma to UCF, so this would be his second transfer. Uh, he played in 2020 for UCF when he totaled 55 receptions, 979 yards, six touchdowns, and recorded 100 or more receiving yards six times. That was the most at UCF since Brendan Marshall in 2005. So Florida went through spring, guys. Uh, we kind of know the storylines there. Kind of the same three that we expected going in with Shorter, Whittemore, Henderson being the top three kind of stayed that way throughout spring, even though Whittemore kind of fighting through uh, some injuries early on. Uh, but we did hear uh, Dejon Reynolds, Marcus Burke coming up, but Marcus Burke injured, kind of missing, missing the spring game there. Uh, so we wanted to see more from those young guys. So we, the questions we had about wide receiver going into spring didn't really get much answered. As I said, limited availability. Spring game didn't show us a whole lot more that we – from those questions, uh, so that's why you know it's not hard to find wide receiver transfer guys uh, right now that you want to maybe add to this rotation. Yeah, I mean, I think you know you really think about where Florida needs help. I would say it's the slot, right? I mean, you got guys that I think you can put outside. I don't know that you're going to find somebody necessarily who's just going to be able to take the top off the defense. And so, you know, just finding somebody who can play not equivalent, but can play that Kadarius Tony role is really sort of one of the one of the places where I I suspect Napier's going to focus and and really try to be able to <laughs> be able to exploit because he doesn't have a whole lot of tight ends either, right? I just saw this week that that Tony Livingston looked like he had surgery as well. So now you got a lot of guys who might be on the shelf coming in this year. Certainly you have Caleb Douglas and Hayden Hansen and Arliss Boardingham coming in, but still the numbers are really low. So in in some ways it's almost just building up depth, right? Normally you'd like to have nine or ten wide receivers on the roster. They've only got eight right now, um, scholarship wide receivers by my count. And so just bringing in numbers, but specifically the slot is where I figure that they'll they'll try to focus because that seems like a place where you might be able to find uh, a diamond in the rough and find a guy who's able to really help out Anthony Richardson um, pretty early on. Yeah, Thomas, I wanted to bring up um, uh, Ricky Purcell because it was uh, Jacob uh, there at, at that Swamp 24-7, and I believe he has a connection to Arizona State. That's where he came from previously, right? So he was able to kind of get in on this one. Yeah, he uh, you know went to journalism school there and, and has covered that program for a couple of years, and uh, I, I think Florida feels pretty good about him right now. Now, obviously, things can change. I mean, you know, Florida felt good about Daryl Jackson, too, and, and that didn't pan out. Uh, but I think I think Florida's probably sitting in the driver's seat right now with with that receiver. And, you know, I think 
just getting guys in there that have some power five experience. You know, I, I'm still reasonably high on Jaquavian Frazier's. I think mm-hmm. he he's a guy that could emerge. Um, but look, I got to be honest with you. I, I've gone back and forth with fans on this quite a bit, you know, since we've had the chance to see spring ball and see the spring game. This is not a very good group of receivers, in my opinion, right now. Um, you know, the starting starting three that you mentioned, I think can be reliable guys. But even then, I'm not sure that any of those is a game breaking type. Like Justin Shorter, I think can be a good um, back shoulder type threat. Uh, you know, I think he, I think he probably gets a little bit of a bad rap for the Oklahoma game and that that bowl game with some of the drops there. Uh, but he's a guy that I thought developed a lot last year. But bottom line is, you know, you're counting on a lot of potential between Frazier's, mm-hmm. Burke, Dejon Reynolds. Those are guys that haven't really shown anything. And I'll be honest with you, watching them. For the parts of spring that we we did see, you're not seeing a whole lot of guys get away. Now, maybe that means Florida's really good in the secondary. That that could be the case. I think that's one of the stronger groups on the team. But just from a physical standpoint, what I'm seeing with these guys is very much what you would expect based on the fact that Dan Mullen, you know, after that class where he signed uh, Trent Whittemore, Deontay Marks, and Jamarcus Weston, flat out said, hey, we've got a bunch of bigger receivers now. We need to go target some slot guys in recruiting. And if you look at the recruiting classes after that, there really weren't any slot guys. So it's not shocking that Florida doesn't necessarily have an electric guy in the slot and doesn't have a whole lot of guys that can run away from people. You know, I think Anthony Richardson can make a lot happen that frees up those guys and he can elevate their play. But the bottom line is that's a spot where Florida needs a talent infusion, whether it's in the portal right away or through the 2023 class, which is loaded in the state. Gators have to get better there because this is not one of the better groups I've seen at that position. Yeah, I mean, my my thing is if you had a true number one, a guy who lived up to a a, a number one billing, then somebody like Justin Shorter may benefit from that. Somebody like Xavier Henderson may benefit from that. But there's not that type of number one receiver. Justin Shorter is the number one receiver, but would he be a number one receiver in much in Florida's last ten year history? Probably not. I mean, our defensive (laughs) coordinators having having to circle that guy and build right their game plan around how do we slow this guy down? I don't see anybody maybe on the entire roster other than Anthony Richardson on offense who would be the case for right now. Well, yeah, and that guy point. who could, well, and that guy who could have been the number one receiver is going to be playing at Maryland. So and that may not be a bad thing. <laughs> maybe not, but I mean, you know, here's the reality. You can't sit there and complain about talent and then drive off talent for cultural reasons or, or, or those sorts of things, right? Like you got to make a choice one way or the other. The choice but we'll go, go into that. Justin Shorter is a former five-star. Xavier Henderson is a high-level four-star receiver. Like those guys haven't played up to that either. Well, and so that's part of it, right? Is you're going to have to eke everything you out, of, everything you can out of these guys. I think, you know, Whittemore is probably the guy who's shown the most on the field. He just has struggled to stay healthy. Um, yeah. You know, he's he's made plays when he's been out there. Again, I think Richardson, when you watch him on film, seems to be throwing two guys who are open. And in college football, a lot of times you just got to wait for the defense to screw up, especially if the quarterback is putting the defense in conflict, and you're going to have somebody come open. And so then the question: you don't necessarily have to beat guys one on one necessarily on the outside all the time now when you play a team like georgia who's pretty or a team like alabama who's pretty disciplined that's when you got to be able to beat people one-on-one and i think that's where we're going to see florida struggle the other thing is I, i do think we need to take a step back and say what are we really trying to accomplish this year so one of the things with with uh with, with Jackson committing to Miami is that he was, he, yes, he was a position of needed defensive tackle, but he also had multiple years of eligibility left. 
And so when we look at wide receiver, I think that's the same thing you need to look at, right? You look at the guys who are going to be eligible to leave after this year. If, if uh, you know, obviously you've got Shorter who's probably who's going to be gone after this year. But if Whittemore has a big year, well, he can go, right? You, you look at even Weston, if he has a big year, he can go. So the guys that you've got sort of slotted in there as the people who are going to be starting – are not necessarily going to be here next year. So I, I think you have to recruit the transfer portal as well as the recruiting class, not just with an eye towards 2022 season, because let's be honest, I think I think in many respects, Napier gets a mulligan based on Dan Mullen's talent if the team underperforms this year. So you don't just want to plug holes to plug holes. Mm-hmm. You want to plug holes or you want to build the roster with these transfers where you've got two or three years of eligibility and sort of um, supplement your roster in a way that makes sense. And so that's the thing that I think we're going to need to look for is, you know, we can say, yeah, we need a slot receiver. But to me, it's more important you got a slot receiver with two or three years of eligibility than just bringing somebody in to plug a hole because, quite honestly, I don't know that plugging a hole in 2022 gets you a whole lot. Other, you know, maybe you get an extra win this year, but what does that cost you in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of counters, in terms of scholarships, in terms of building the younger guys who didn't get an opportunity because you brought in a guy for one year, um, all those sorts of things, and that's stuff that has to be taken into account by the staff when they're deciding who are they going to bring in and who are they not. Yeah, because Florida's not going to find a receiver out there that's going to instantly turn this team into throwing 40 times instead of running 45 times. And it's just, I mean, that's just not the makeup of the team right now, as far as, you know, starting five, six, seven on offensive line and what they have at the in the running back room. Florida is going to be a, a, a running football team. Now, I do think Anthony Richardson opens, opens it up a bit more than we saw from Levi Lewis at Louisiana, as long as the receivers show up there. But yeah, there's not a receiver out there that's going to instantly change Florida into. And I know I'm going overboard here. The 2020 Florida offense. Agreed. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> okay, there we go. Sorry. You sum that one up pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Boom. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So pretty much, um, Thomas, I'll leave this one off for you before we kind of just go through a couple more of uh, the big questions and do some of the questions I got from the Gators Breakdown Plus members. Transfer portal from any other position, whether it be linebacker, whether it be uh, offensive line, maybe. And we know Florida brought in Osiris Torrance, uh, of course, in the, in the wintertime. But uh, are you looking at are you looking at those two positions and in, in maybe any more uh, where Florida should be aggressive in the transfer portal? I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, my answer would be that these things are changing daily, um, literally. I mean, you've got guys – on the roster who are maybe being counted on as depth right now that one day we're hearing this guy's going to leave. And then I literally, mm-hmm. while we're you know on the show here, I'm getting texts. Oh, this guy's going to stay. So <laughs> I would not want to be a college football coach right now. I think managing that <laughs> is like in this deadline. I mean, these guys have got to be having some sleepless nights. Um, but I think, yeah, I think those are probably the spots I'd like to see a more veteran linebacker come in. And even if it's just a one-year guy, that's a, that's a spot where I'm okay taking a one-year guy. I think the younger guys are going to be very good. Dewan Black, Scooby Williams, Derek Wingo. I think you're going to have growing pains at that position. Um, so if you can get a productive guy that comes in there, I like that spot. Defensive tackle, hands down. They, they've got yeah. it. They've still got to fill that. Like, period. I don't, I don't care if they missed on Daryl Jackson. They've got to get somebody. In my opinion, I'm trying to think. So, Thomas, I, I want to go to yeah. you linebacker mm-hmm. right quick, and yep. Will, you can jump into here. I've thought about transfer portal linebacker too. Right now, would you say starters are Ventrell Miller, Dewan Black, and are you looking for a transfer more for a bigger type of linebacker to back up Ventrell Miller, 
because there's not really anything behind him proven or is Thomas maybe going to your point more of the outside to bring more experience than Wingo brings and Dewan Black brings and Scooby Williams brings right now. I mean, like you said, there's three names I think you can line up on the outside, even Ramari Bernie, if you want to go four. But who's backing up Ventral Miller as far as the big bodied middle linebacker? And if, and if you bring in somebody who's yeah. really proven, you're not taking Ventral Miller off the field, I don't think. I, I want a starter there. Uh, and maybe that's okay. unrealistic. I haven't looked at uh, the exact players that are out there in the portal, but I'm I'm thinking the you know, Arizona like, State uh, Gentry Gentry the Arizona yeah, State a, linebacker. He's a good one. I mean, uh, yeah. Not sure where things stand with him, but I mean, if you, if you can get a you know a Henry Toto type, that I, I wouldn't settle yeah. for a backup at linebacker. I don't think you take numbers there just to get another backup. It's got to be somebody that can step in and start alongside Ventrell. Mm. Uh, you you know, the, yeah, the the place that I I think they need to go after. And I wouldn't have said this before spring practice is tight end. I mean, you look at it in terms of <laughs> you've got Wilcox who's done, you've got Alexis Nodem with injuries, you got Livingston with injuries, Zipper, um, if he has a decent year, is going to be gone after this year, potentially transfer portal type material as well. Right. You never know given playing time and those sorts of things. And so that's a pretty that's a pretty you know, a pretty important position for Napier in a position where they don't necessarily have the depth that they had or even thought they were going to have, um, you know, coming out of or coming into spring practice, all of a sudden they don't have any depth there. And it's a key part of what Napier is going to try to do on the offense and installing the offense. And again, when you think about sort of planning, using the 2022 year to, you know, to spearhead into 2023 and 2024, you don't want to be modifying your offense in order to match your personnel in that first year, if you're going to eventually go back to that two tight end, you know, two tight end set pretty exclusively. And so, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to get through the sec schedule with the guys they've got at tight end right now. If you, if Elksness or Odom end up out for any length of time in the fall, right. And those injuries sort of line up with, they're going to be coming back right as fall camp is, is probably, you know, finishing up. And are you going to rush a guy back who had a torn labrum and have him play an SEC schedule and expect him to make all make it all the way through? I, I think that's a tough ask, and I think you want to build the ability to allow those guys to work in slowly for two reasons. One, the their knowledge of the scheme, or at least the reps that they've gotten, has been relatively limited. But the other is, is that you know, again, you don't want to bring a guy back from you know from from a torn labrum or or those sorts of injuries that are relatively serious and and further further cause problems downstream to where, you know, you get injured in the second or third game of the year and you're out for the rest of the season or it's nagging the whole time. You don't get a whole lot of reps. And then you're coming into 2023 with the same questions that you had in 2022 at that position. So I look at it and this one is one where I think you take somebody for depth is, is tight end. And that's not something I would have said, you know, <laughs> three, four months ago, but certainly something that I'm looking at now. All right. Well, uh, before Thomas has to go, let's uh, we'll kind of maybe speed round through some of these. So uh, Robert Gargliardo, uh, he asked a question. What player stood out to you on a second rewatch of the spring game? Anyone different than watching it live? Watching it live, uh, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on the offensive line. Uh, so it did going back and, and watching Osiris Torrance, of course. And that was where my eyes went first. I was like, okay, I want to look at what the offensive line's doing, especially. Osiris Torrance, and he did not disappoint <laughs> whatsoever at right guard there with the first team uh, most of the game. 
gave Richardson time all night. I think uh, maybe uh, pressure late uh, to Jervon Dexter. So good. You know, you want to see good on good and you want to see a battle there. So good uh, for, for Dexter uh, to get on top there. But uh, Torrance, most of the game, uh, really just held his on, uh, held his own all game long, led the way a few times to get into the second level, uh, shielding linebackers away from the uh, from the running backs, instrumental in blocking for Johnson on a touchdown run. And look, I mean, interesting rotation there with with, with Josh Braun. I think Torrance is lead, leads the way right now, uh, establishing, establishing himself as the likely starter. But Osiris Torrance and, and watching the spring game again, you can see why he got all the hype that he got. Yeah, there's no doubt he was he was great. I would add Austin Barber, I think, to that list. Um, you know, not all the way there yet, but I think he's emerging as a guy that could be maybe your third tackle. Um, and then I think defensively, Jaden Hill for me is a guy that you know I know a lot of fans are ready to write off. I think he's a guy that uh, is a veteran who has a lot of experience and coming off that injury, obviously, you know, it was good to see him out there and, and making some plays. He stood out a little bit more on the rewatch than than watching live. I'm glad you said that, Thomas, because uh, one uh, one of the other big questions I had: Did we get any more solid info on who we think is going to be that number two cornerback? Because I think all three guys, whether it be throughout spring and nobody really separating, but did some nice things in the in the spring game as well. Uh, you know, I think uh, Kimber was just glue in coverage pretty much all night long. Yeah, I think I think Florida has some really good options there. I think that that secondary, really, I think both safety and corner are pretty deep. Will anybody stand out to you on a, on a rewatch of the game? Yeah, I mean, I would say that during the game, I didn't think that I, I didn't think Montreal Johnson was anything special. Just watching the game, but when you went back and looked at it on rewatch, you saw him do some things that are going to get Florida an extra three or four yards, an extra first down every once in a while. You know, again, I don't know that he's a guy who's going to break a bunch of eighty yard runs, but I think he's going to be able to make sure that he gets his foot in the ground, gets north and south. There's one play in particular while Spurrier was in the was in the press box, and he saw the hole open right as Johnson did too, <laughs> and they tripped him up with his sho- by his shoelaces. But those are the cons of runs there where, you know, you, you're going in one direction, they got that zone blocking scheme going on, and then you put your foot in, your ground and go, foot in the ground and go north and south. It was something where I looked at Johnson and was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then on rewatch, I think you could sort of see the differentiation between some of the, between him and some of the other backs. Yeah, like I said, we, we singled out everybody who pretty much made plays in the spring game when we did our spring game review. Donovan McMillan with the interception. As I mentioned, uh, Jordan Young and, and Jalen Kimber there in the secondary making their plays. But good question there by Robert uh, to ask anybody flash that we didn't initially see uh, from the get-go. So kind of to extend Will's conversation there, Eagle Gator asked what kind of production can we expect in the run game with the current offensive line? Spring game didn't show that we had the ability to open up huge run lanes and – Look, this new zone scheme, you know, part of the run game is going to be this new zone. Some of it will be his own scheme there with Billy Napier. And, look, that, that's going to be a lot of timing that they just have to get down with a lot of reps in the spring, a lot of reps in the fall uh, with, with that style of offense. Offensive line, running backs have to be in sync a whole lot more. Uh, and running backs need to show a, a little patience. I thought that's where Demarcus Bowman probably can get a little bit better. I thought there were times he could have had bigger runs, but – maybe a little excited, still learning the game himself, still learning this scheme himself. Uh, but I do think there was an opportunity for some bigger runs had he been a little more patient. Uh, but we heard, and Thomas, you, you saw it much more than we did. I mean, not not much open practice, but we had heard about it that you know, some more, and you didn't get really see any 11 on 11. So we got all got to hear about the, the big runs all spring long from Lingard and Bowman and, and Johnson. Uh, but for the one chance that we got to see it again with this team, 
it's still lacking. The last few years, Florida's not been able to hit those big runs in the run game. We thought after hearing it all spring long, well, we might get that in the spring game. Maybe it's a little bit of credit to the defense, but it is still something that we wanted to see. So Eagle Gator asking the question. I mean, it's a fair question, again, just because given the Florida's lack of uh, you know, the, the issues the last few years of being able to hit those big runs with any consistency. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys – both kind of hinted at it, you know, it's a timing thing. I mean, when you're, when you're running a new scheme like that, it's going to take some time. I'm not super concerned about that. We heard enough reports throughout the spring that the O-line was looking good. I guess the only thing that would sort of give me pause is we've talked about the other side, right? The the defensive yeah. tackle spot. You know, I think yeah. you've got three good starters on the D-line. I feel very, very good about Princely, Javon Dexter and Brenton Cox. I, I thought Brenton Cox took a big step forward this spring, but you know, the interior of the O-line is what we heard was really, you know, taking the most steps, especially as spring went on. And the only question I have is, is that a little bit of fool's gold because of that that question mark at defensive tackle? But as far as the actual, you know, ground game, I you know, we heard enough positives about that. We've seen these backs. They, they look the part, you know, as far as the skill positions go. I don't have the same concerns about the running backs as I do about the receivers. So I think Florida will be fine there. I do think it's going to be a lot like 2018 when Dan Mullen took over and you had some scheme changes where, you know, there was just one or two guys that are off on a given play that maybe keep it from hitting. And then as you see them continue to get more comfortable with it over the course of the season, by the time you hit those final, you know, in 2018, it was those last four games really starting with South Carolina really started to run over people and it started to click. I think you're going to see that again because Florida's got the same makeup on the O-line. You know, they've got a starting group that has a good bit of experience and you've got some backs that have talent. I'm not super worried about the ground game. I mean, look, I mean, going back to Will's point of Montreal Johnson, he played in this offense. You know, he's he's used to it. He was a running back, played on both sides, on both teams uh, in, in that Thursday night spring game. So, of course, yeah, you expect that his experience in this offense to kind of really take off more so than Lingard and Bowman. Uh, and that's probably what we saw uh, in, in that rewatch and kind of going to that uh, question as uh, well. So, one more backup quarterback. That's a question I'll bring up. AR goes down. Is there is there is there any confidence <laughs> that Florida can have some success going through the season? I I wouldn't be too high on it. Uh, Jack Miller, like I said, I wasn't whole all that impressed with his Ohio State spring game uh, a year ago. Did okay the first couple of drives, leading that offense down, but of course not getting any points on the board. Uh, but all in all, I, of course Del Rio. Uh, transfers out kitten is back there uh, as well i've just ar goes down it uh it might be a scary season guys that's all you will <laughs> <laughs> well so i i did write an article about jack miller when he transferred it was not in a glowing light so i'm not incredibly high on him being a difference maker but it's a question of when ar goes down if he goes down right can jack miller lead them to a win over kentucky can jack miller lead them to a win over missouri I think that's possible, right? I think what we saw in the spring game is really kind of what we saw last year is that, you know, there's enough talent here that the team can move the ball up and down the field when there is a lot of space. 
And then when it becomes constricted in the red zone, Anthony Richardson becomes really, really important, right? You're not getting separation. The defenses can, can fall into zones. And if you don't have a guy who can break down those zones or a guy who can zip the ball in, you're going to struggle. And that's what we saw, I think, with Miller in the spring game. I think that's what we saw with Emory Jones last year, at least in terms of getting the ball out late, which is the other thing we saw with Miller in the spring game as well. Um, now, all of that's a caveat to Miller hasn't been in the system very long. You know, the, one of the disappointments with Emory Jones is that he had been in the system for multiple years by the time he comes in and starts last year. And so you wouldn't expect to see that same sort of hesitation. And we did see that hesitation. Now you go back and say, okay, well, is Miller going to get better? Absolutely. But again, I think it depends. I mean, you know, I thought it was incredibly unfair when Anthony Richardson had to start against Georgia last year as his first start. Um, and if that ends up being Jack Miller's first start for Florida because of an injury, then Florida's going to struggle. If they play, you know, a Florida State team that doesn't really want to be there the, the last week of the season and Miller has to play that game, then I think he has an opportunity to, to lead them to a win. I, you know, look, I, I don't think you're going to have a team that goes – it's not going to be like when they had Skylar Morhenweg in in the, in the 2013 season, I don't think, if Miller comes in. Now, if Kitna comes in or you end up with Max Brown playing, well, now maybe you're in that sort of situation – you know, or the Jacoby Brissett era where you had him coming in sort of, you know, without any sort of starting experience against Florida State that one year um, where the offense is just completely stagnant. But I don't think you get that out of Jack Miller, but I don't think you're going to be going up and down the field and flying up and down the field the same way you would if AR was in, was, was in charge. And you know, that, that's probably the reality for most teams in college football. If you, have, if you have a guy who's capable of being a star as your backup in this era, why isn't he playing someplace else? Right. I mean, yep. the, the reality is in the transfer portal, if you if you're as good, I mean, we even saw it a few years ago with Ohio State. You better State have a Earth. good NIL deal now. That's that's what it's about. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe. I mean, we, we saw what happened a couple of years ago with Burrow, right? I mean, Dwayne Haskins wins the job. Burrow decides to transfer, goes to LSU, doesn't play great his first year there, but obviously puts in that great 2019 season. And so had the talent, you could sort of see it in his profile and all that sort of stuff. Um, there was no reason for Burrow to stay at Ohio State once he lost the job. And that's, I think, what you'll see around, you know, in, in terms of what happens in college football. So having a solid backup who can win you games is a valuable thing. And I think that's what Miller brings. And it's just going to depend, right? If he has to step in for a couple of drives against Kentucky, a couple of drives against, you know, South Florida, great. If he's got to step in and be a, be a star against Georgia or Alabama, I think you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> I think your point – yeah, yeah. I, I think the, I wanted to add on to the point about the red zone. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. When the space gets compressed, and I'll add to that, the other thing is going back to the skill positions, I don't think Florida has a guy that can be like maybe Justin Shorter can be that guy that you can just throw up a fade to him. Maybe he turns mm -hmm. into that. But you don't have a Kyle Pitts where you're willing to take three 50-50 shots in a row to the guy, and you got a pretty good likelihood that he's going to come down with something. You don't in, have a Kadarius in, in, double, in double or triple coverage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't have a Kadarius Tony where you can move him around the formation, create some misdirection. Like, so it, it's going to be harder for the quarterbacks when they're down in that red zone. Anthony Richardson, like you brought up, has that ability to sort of improvise, make things happen. I don't see that from Jack Miller, but I will say I think, based on what we saw, again, very limited windows throughout the spring. To my eye, he was the most consistent quarterback that we saw in terms of accuracy so I think for him it's going to be all about picking up the playbook which is what he said when we talked to him after the spring game he feels behind from a knowledge standpoint he's got to improve his knowledge of the playbook I think he was just thinking too much and I think it would be a little bit of a mistake to overreact based on that one sample size of the spring game playing with the twos I think he's going to be better than fans saw there if he's forced into action but 
I do think there's a lot of learning that needs to happen as far as the playbook, as far as not locking onto reads, getting through things a little quicker. I just think, I think it's important to sort of temper what we saw in the spring game with the rest of spring, which honestly was more encouraging. All right, I know we got to get uh, got to get Thomas out here so we can end it with this one. So it's timing out right anyway. Levi Dees uh, from the Gators Breakdown Plus Discord. This team has the makings of a good team with the lack of depth. Do you think we can take the leap to a very good to great team in 2022? Well, I'm going to extend the thought that we just had. This team has to stay healthy. There's just no. There's not a lot of depth. The only the only way this team goes to a great team is if AR lives up to what we think he can be as far as potential goes and the rest of the team around him stays healthy because there's not a lot of depth in front of him on the offensive line. There's not a lot of depth on the, on the other side of the trenches on the defensive line, uh, of course. Maybe throw linebacker in as far as inexperience goes. we got to see some more production there. The only way this team becomes great, and I'm not breaking any news here, uh, but I think uh, we just kind of know it answering the question here. It's got to be AR, and it's got to be everybody around him staying healthy. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question. I do think, I think momentum, and I've I've felt mm. this way for several years. I think momentum within a season is so so important in college football. We see it all the time. Teams that are really really talented, for whatever reason, stumble and then can never recover, and vice versa. Teams that maybe aren't as talented can play above their head. I hate to put it too much on any one game, but that Utah game is going to be so important for just the maintaining the positive culture. All that. If Florida comes into a rock and swamp and can do well in that game, and then to your point, if they, you know, if they pull out a win there and start to get some momentum, and then they're able to stay healthy at some of these key spots like O line, you know, you can get by. As far as the question, good to very good or great, I don't think this is a great team. I'll just be honest with you. I don't think it's a great team. I think this year one is a building block for Florida, and that's the way it needs to be treated. And you you scrap and fight in every game, you instill that culture. But at the end of the day, to me, this is not this team is not talented enough to win an SEC title. Maybe that changes with the portal. Maybe they add some guys that come out of left field that we're not looking at right now. Um, but just being realistic, this is a team where I think you're hoping to win nine games. Maybe if you get really lucky, you win ten, and that'd be a great, great first year. Will, what comes to my mind with Thomas's example there, and I don't, I'm not trying to make the comparison. I don't want to compare him to that, but some like. Some similarity there. Couldn't it be the ride the wave of Jim McElwain's first year at Florida when you had Will Greer, you found a way to win games. You had the the the, the crazy play to end the Tennessee game with Greer to Callaway, and you were able to knock off and destroy Ole Miss the very next week. You was just riding a wave of momentum there. Florida wasn't really all that great. Florida really was all that deep that year either. Had a good defense to rely on, but stayed healthy until Will Greer, <laughs> as we all know, um, can't find his way onto the field. You know that that's. I, I think you're kind of reading what Thomas is going to. Maybe maybe there's a a, a a wave to ride right there. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think I agree that the team has a chance to be good. I don't think they have a chance to be great. I think they have a chance to be average. I think I think if you told me which side of the spectrum do I sit on, I say average for two reasons. One is I think their defensive backfield was pretty good last year against the pass. They were awful against the run. And now what makes me think they're going to be better against the run this year based on what I've seen and also based on who they've brought in and who they've replaced who's left? Uh, okay. 
I'm, I'm not sure how you improve there on offense. They were Todd Grantham. That's how. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, okay, maybe <laughs> you're giving me some hope now. Uh, on the <laughs> offensive side of the ball, I have more hope because they were like top 20 in yards per play, but they were top 60 in points per game. That sort of goes back to what we were talking about: the field being compressed, all the turnovers in the red zone, just sort of how things slowed down. When Emory Jones was down there, I think Anthony Richardson probably changes that a little bit. And if he can stay healthy, the offense will be a little bit better. Um, but I kind of want to turn the, the question on its on its head a little bit because you just mentioned Jim McElwain's first year and everybody got all excited with the Ole Miss game. And then Dan Mullen's first year where you get that big comeback against South Carolina and you start progressing to you know being able to beat, beat Florida State and then demolish Michigan in the bowl game. Did that impact the culture in a bad way? Where it, you know you, you think back to Nick Saban's first year in 2007, and his guys lose to Louisiana Monroe, and then lose to Auburn the week after that. There's nothing more embarrassing as an Alabama player than losing to a Division II team, and then also losing to your huge rival. And did that fuel those guys? Did that get them to buy in? Now, obviously, Saban had, had success at LSU. He'd been throwing at Miami Dolphins. It's easy to get people to buy into it when you're Nick Saban. At the same time do those struggles actually help in some capacity early on? So, you know, if the team wins 10 games, everybody's going to be happy, but they won a bunch of games with McElwain in his first year and a bunch of games with Mullen in his first year, and it didn't translate. And I think at least not long-term. And so I don't know that we need to worry too much about the actual results on the field. I think we want to worry about the process that we're going through in order to get there. So, you know, if, if they if they go 10 and 10 and three, but they win six one score games, Eh, that's that's really almost a seven and six season because those are supposed to be 50 50 keep that in mind when you're thinking about it now if they go you know seven and six and they have you know and they go oh and four in one score games well now that was a better team than maybe we thought and so keeping an eye on those sorts of things i think will be important as we move forward i again i, I think you know anthony richardson's gonna have to have an otherworldly season for this team to be great and even then if the defense doesn't step up, you're still looking at like 2007 Tebow, where the team went went what nine and four, with Tebow putting up a Heisman campaign and and really announcing his arrival. Everything improved that next year. They brought in a whole set of recruits to come in. Joe Hayden got a lot of experience, I think, in 2007 that sort of prepared him for 2008. You had a bunch of different things that happened in order to build, and I think that's sort of what you're looking for this year. Is this is a building year, so you know. If if Jadon Hill's part of your plans, then he needs to get a lot of playing time. If Kimber's a part of your plans, 2023, you want to see a lot of playing time out of him. You want to make sure you know what you've got in Kamari Wilson. You want to know what holes you need to plug and then go out and get those guys in, on the recruiting trail and then hopefully start filling it. Because remember, the spring transfer portal isn't the only transfer portal that's available. The, in fact, in many ways, maybe you want to sort of figure out what you've got and then plug those holes next year when you've when you're really going to make a run for things and you know we haven't talked about it at all tonight but Florida doesn't have any scholarships and so you know th- this is one of those things where you're going to put your hole you're going to put your finger in the hole in a dam on this side and then you know there's going to be a leak that springs over here and you're going to put your finger in there but then you got to take your finger out right that there's going to be that balance this year especially if you bring in a guy in the transfer portal you, it's going to be offset because you have to lose someone in order to gain someone. So in all the places where we're like, yeah, we got plenty of depth. That may not be the case in, you know, three, four weeks just because of, you know, it's, it's not just that there's going to be a bunch of people coming available in the transfer chance transfer portal for Florida to bring in. They're going to have to offset that with guys leaving the program as well. Well said. Yeah. Very interesting there. I mean, as Thomas was kind of pointing to later, you've heard names of guys who may be leaving, who, 
maybe aren't leaving, and now Florida misses on a transfer portal target. Maybe some guy stays now because <laughs> there's more of an opportunity. Who knows? Who knows? So I know Thomas has uh, got, got to get out of here and probably go uh, do some more research on, on that. And uh, Thomas, man, I can't uh, can't thank you enough, man. If I, uh, we've had this in the plans for a while, but uh, thank you for hopping on here on Gage Breakdown. Thanks for having me, man. I'm always happy to jump on. Love talking about yeah. with you. Yeah, we'll get you more. We'll get you on more often for sure. Good discussion there. Will, man, what you got coming up at Read and Reaction? Oh, man, I, I've been taking a break here. I haven't gotten anything out in a while. So um, <laughs> I, we had a really interesting interview with Kevin Kelly a couple of weeks ago, and he started talking about what coaches are doing to take advantage of the different rule changes and why offenses have really been moving forward over the last four or five years. And I, I've got a big article coming up in the next hopefully week that's going to uh, detail what's been going on statistically and then what coaches are doing to combat that. Because I do think out of all the things that Napier's doing in terms of the guys he's targeting, they're targeting the right guys on the defensive side of the ball to try to mitigate some of the things, the rule changes specifically, that have been leading to more offense. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Gators Breakdown. For Thomas Goldcamp from Swamp 24-7, Will Miles from Read and Reaction. I'm your host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.